0: section 12 of a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org a compendious history of english literature and of the english language volume 1 by george lily crake chapter 2 part 6 the french language in england It is commonly asserted that for some reigns after the Norman Conquest the exclusive language of government and legislation in England was the French, that all pleadings, at least in the Supreme Courts, were carried on in that language, and that in it all deeds were drawn up and all laws promulgated. This popular notion observes a learned living writer cannot be easily supported. Before the reign of Henry the Third, we cannot discover a deed or law drawn or composed in French, instead of prohibiting the english language it was employed by the conqueror and his successors in their charters until the reign of henry the second when it was superseded not by the french but by the latin language which had been gradually gaining or rather regaining ground for the charters anterior to alfred are invariably in latin so far was the conqueror from showing any aversion to the English language or making any such attempt as is ascribed to him to effect its abolition, that, according to Ordéricus Vitalis, when he first came over he strenuously applied himself to learn it, for the special purpose of understanding, without the aid of an interpreter, the causes that were pleaded before him, and persevered in that endeavour till the tumult of many other occupations and what the historian calls Durior Itas a more iron time of necessity compelled him to give it up. The common statement rests on the more than suspicious authority of the history attributed to Ingolphus, the fabricator of which in his loose and ignorant account of the matter has set down this falsehood along with some other things that are true or probable. Even before the conquest the confessor himself, according to this writer, though a native of England, yet from his education and long residence in Normandy, had become almost a Frenchman, and when he succeeded to the English throne, he brought over with him great numbers of Normans, whom he advanced to the highest dignities in the church and the state. Wherefore it is added, the whole land began under the influence of the king and the other Normans introduced by him to lay aside the English customs and to imitate the manners of the French in many things. For example, all the nobility in their courts began to speak French as a great piece of gentility, to draw up their charters and other writings after the French fashion and to grow ashamed of their old national habits in these and many other particulars further on we are told they the normans held the language of the natives in such abhorrence that the laws of the land and the statutes of the english kings were drawn out in the gallic or french tongue and to boys in the schools the elements of grammar were taught in french and not in english even the english manner of writing was dropped and the french manner introduced in all charters and books The facts are more correctly given by other old writers who although not contemporary with the conquest are probably of as early a date as the compiler of the croyland history the dominican friar robert holcott writing in the earlier part of the fourteenth century informs us that there was then no institution of children in the old english that the first language they learned was the french and that through that tongue they were afterwards taught latin and he adds that this was a practice which had been introduced at the conquest and which had continued ever since, about the middle of the same century, Ranulf Higden, in his *Palae Chronicon*, says, as the passage is translated by Trevisa, "This appeiring, impairing of the birth, the Tunga is by cause of thingus. un is for children in schola agenis against the usage uh, and manner of all the other nations, Beth be." Compelled for to leave her there, own a and for to construa her lassoons and her thinges of Frencha and haveth Sitha have since that the Normans come first into England. Also, gentlemen as children, Beth he taught be taught for to speak o' Frencha from the time that thy Beth rocked in her. Cradle and Cuneth can speak a uh, and play a uh, with a uh, Childas Bruca and a blondish rustic men wall liken, uh, himself will liken themselves to gentlemen and fondeth are fond with great uh, business, uh, for to speak a uh, French uh, for to be the more e told of the teachers in the schools in fact, were generally if not universally ecclesiastics and the conquest had normanized the church quite as much as the state immediately after that revolution great numbers of foreigners were brought over both to serve in the parochial cures and to fill the monasteries that now began to multiply so rapidly these churchmen must have been in constant intercourse with the people of all classes in various capacities not only as teachers of youth but as the instructors of their parishioners from the altar And as holding daily and hourly intercourse with them in all the relations that subsist between pastor and flock they probably in this way diffuse their own tongue throughout the land of their adoption to a greater extent than is commonly suspected we shall have occasion as we proceed to mention some facts which would seem to imply that in the twelfth century the french language was very generally familiar to the middle classes in england at least in the great towns It was at any rate the only language spoken for some ages after the conquest by our kings and not only by nearly all the nobility but by a large proportion even of the inferior landed proprietors most of whom also were of norman birth or descent ritson in his rambling incoherent dissertation on romance and minstrelsy prefixed to his ancient english metrical romances has collected but not in the most satisfactory manner some of the evidence we have as to the speech of the first norman kings He does not notice what or Dericus Vitalis tells us of the conqueror's meritorious attempt, which does not seem, however, to have been more successful than such experiments on the part of grown-up gentlemen usually are, so that he may be allowed to be correct enough in the assertion with which he sets out that we have no information that William the bastard, his son Rufus, his daughter Maud, or his nephew Stephen did or could speak the Anglo-Saxon or English language. Reference is then made to a story told in what is called Brompton's chronicle respecting Henry the Second, which however is not very intelligible in all its parts, though Ritson has slurred over the difficulties. As Henry was passing through Wales, the old chronicler relates on his return from Ireland in the spring of eleven seventy two, he found himself on a Sunday at the castle of Cardiff and stopped there to hear mass after which, as he was proceeding to mount his horse to be off again, there presented itself before him a somewhat singular apparition, a man with red hair and a round tonsure, lean and tall, attired in a white tunic and barefoot, who, addressing him in the Teutonic tongue, began, Goethe, olda Kinga, and proceeded to deliver a command from Christ, as he said, and his mother from John the Baptist, and Peter that he should suffer no traffic or servile works to be done throughout his dominions on the sabbath day except only such as pertain to the use of food which command if thou observest concluded the speaker whatever thou mayest undertake thou shalt happily accomplish the king immediately speaking in french desired the soldier who held the bridle of his horse to ask the rustic if he had dreamed all this the soldier made the inquiry as desired in english and then it is added the man replied in the same language as before and addressing the king said whether i have dreamed it or no mark this day for unless thou shalt do what i have told thee and amend thy life thou shalt within a year's time hear such news as thou shalt mourn to the day of thy death and having so spoken the man vanished out of sight with the calamities which of course ensued to the doomed king we have here nothing to do although the chronicle reports only the three commencing words of the prophet's first address in what he calls the teutonic tongue there can be no doubt we conceive that the rest though here translated into Latin, was also delivered in the same Teutonic, by which apparently can only have been meant the vernacular English, or what is commonly called Saxon. The man would not begin his speech in one language and then suddenly break away into another, but if this was the case, Henry, from his reply, would appear to have understood English, though he might not be able to speak it. The two languages thus subsisting together were probably both understood by many of those who could only speak one of them we have another evidence of this in the fact of the soldier as we have seen speaking english and also understanding the king's french it is we suppose merely so much affectation or bad rhetoric in the chronicler that makes him vary his phrase for the same thing from the teutonic tongue teutonica lingua in one place to english anglica in another and immediately after to the former language lingua priori for the words which he gives as teutonic are english words and when henry desired the soldier to address the priest in english and the soldier did so. It must have been because that was the language in which he had addressed the king. King Richard, Ritson proceeds, is never known to have uttered a single English word, unless one may rely on the evidence of Robert Manning for the express words when of Isaac, king of Cyprus. O oh, Dila said the king, "This is a fola Briton." The latter expression seems proverbial. Whether it alludes to the Welsh or to the Amoricans, because Isaac was neither by birth, though he might be both by folly many great nobles of england in this century were utterly ignorant of the english language as an instance he mentions the case before noticed by turwitt of william longchamp bishop of ely chancellor and prime minister to richard i who according to a remarkable account in a letter of his contemporary hugh bishop of coventry preserved by Hoveden, did not know a word of english the only fact relating to this subject in connection with john or his reign that ritson brings forward is the speech which that king's ambassador as related by matthew paris made to the king of morocco our nation has learned in three idioms that is to say latin french and english this would go to support the conclusion that both the french and the latin languages were at this time not unusually spoken by persons of education in england the long duck and the long Doyle. French as well as Latin was at least extensively employed among us in literary composition the Gauls, the original inhabitants of the country now called France, were a Celtic people, and their speech was a dialect of the same great primitive tongue which probably at one time prevailed over the whole of Western Europe, and is still vernacular in Ireland, in Wales, and among the Highlanders of Scotland. After the country became a Roman province, this ancient language gradually gave place to the Latin which, however, here as elsewhere, soon became corrupted in the mouths of a population, mixing it with their own barbarous vocables and forms, or at least divesting it of many of its proper characteristics in their rude appropriation of it. But as different depraving or obliterating influences operated in different circumstances, and a variety of kinds of bad Latin were thus produced in the several countries which had been provinces of the empire, so even within the limits of Gaul there grew up two such distinct dialects, one in the south another in the north all these forms of bastard latin wherever they arose whether in italy in spain or in gaul were known by the common name of roman or romance languages or the rustic roman romana rustica and whereby that generic term distinguished from the barbarian tongues or those that had been spoken by the celtic german and other uncivilized nations before they came into communication with the romans from them have sprung what are called the latin languages of modern europe the italian the spanish and the portuguese as well as what we now denominate the french the romance spoken in the south of gaul appears to have been originally nearly if not altogether identical with that spoken in the north-east of spain it had always preserved a close resemblance and affinity to that and the other romance dialects of spain and italy it is in fact to be accounted a nearer relation of the spanish and italian than of the modern french The latter is exclusively the offspring of the Romance of Northern Gaul, which, both during its first growth and subsequently, was acted upon by different influences from those which modified the formation of the Southern tongue. It is probable that whatever it retained of the Celtic ingredient to begin with was, if not stronger or of larger quantity than what entered into the Romance dialect of the South, at any rate of a somewhat different character. But the peculiar form it eventually assumed may be regarded as having been mainly owing to the foreign pressure to which it was twice afterwards exposed, first by the settlement of the Franks in the north and northeast of Gaul in the 5th century, while the Visigoths and Burgundians had spread themselves over the south, and again by that of the Normans in the northwest in the 10th. What may have been the precise nature or amount of the effect produced upon the Romance tongue of northern Gaul by either or both of these Teutonic occupations of the country, it is not necessary for our present purpose to inquire, It is sufficient to observe that that dialect could not fail to be thereby peculiarly affected and its natural divergence from the southern romance materially aided and promoted the result in fact was that the two dialects became two distinct languages differing from one another more than any two other of the latin languages did the italian for example from the spanish or the spanish from the portuguese and even more than the romance of the south of gaul differed from that either of italy or of spain this southern romance it only remains further to be observed came in course of time to be called the provencal tongue but it does not appear to have received this name till in the beginning of the twelfth century the county of provence had fallen to the inherited by raymond beranger count of catalonia who thereupon transferred his court to arles and made that town the center and chief seat of the literary cultivation which had previously flourished in barcelona there had been poetry written in the romance of southern gaul before this but it was not till now that the troubadours as the authors of that poetry call themselves rose into much celebrity and hence it has been maintained with great appearance of reason that what is best or most characteristic about the provençal poetry is really not of french but of spanish origin in that case the first inspiration may probably have been caught from the arabs the greater part of provence soon after passed into the possession of the counts of Toulouse. And the troubadours flocked to that city, but the glory of the Provencal tongue did not last altogether for much more than a century, and then when it had ceased to be employed in poetry and literature and had declined into a mere provincial patois, it in the northern French were wont to be severally distinguished by the names of the Languedoc, sometimes called by modern writers the Aquitanian and the Long Doyle from the words for yes, which were oc in the one and oil afterwards oi or, or we in the other dante mentions them by these appellations and with this explanation in his treatise de vulgari eloquio written in the end of the thirteenth or beginning of the fourteenth century and one of them still gives its name to the great province of languedoc where the dialect formerly so called yet subsists as the popular speech, though of course much changed and debased from what it was in the days of its old renown, when it lived on the lips of rank and genius and beauty, and was the favorite vehicle of love and song. the langue d'oïl, on the other hand, formerly spoken only to the north of the Loire, has grown up into what we now call the French language, and has become, at least for literary purposes and for all the educated classes, the established language of the whole country some fond students of the remains of the other dialect have deplored this result as a misfortune to france which they contend would have had a better modern language and literature if the langue doc in the contest between the two had prevailed over the long doyle it is probable indeed that accident and political circumstances have had more to do in determining the matter as it has gone than the merits of the case but in every country as well as in france in spain in italy in germany in england some other of the old popular dialects than the one that has actually acquired the ascendancy has in like manner had its enthusiastic reclaimers against the unjust fortune which has condemned it to degradation or oblivion And we may suspect that the partiality which the mind is apt to acquire for whatever it has made the subject of long investigation and study especially if it be something which has been generally neglected and perhaps in some instances a morbid sympathy with depression and defeat which certain historical and philosophical speculators have in common with the readers and writers of sentimental novels are at the bottom of much of this unavailing and purposeless lamentation the question is one which we have hardly the means of solving even if any solution of it which might now be attainable could have any practical effect the langue d'oil is now unalterably established as the french language the langue d'oc is except as a local patois irrecoverably dead nor are there wanting french archaeologists quite equal in knowledge of the subject to their opponents who maintained that in this there is nothing to regret but the contrary that the northern romance tongue was as superior to the southern intrinsically as it has proved in fortune and that its early literature was of far higher value and promise than the provençal norman trouveur Duke richard I, T Beau de vernon turol or turolde chanson de roland it is, at any rate, this early literature of the Doyle, which is for us in England of most interest, it is, in fact, in a manner, a part of our own. Not only did it spring up, and for a long time flourish exclusively among those same wonderful Normans whose greatest and most enduring dominion has been established in this island. The greater part of it appears to have been produced not in France, but in England. This was first shown by the late Abbe de la Rue in a series of dissertations published in seventeen ninety six and seventeen ninety seven in the twelfth and thirteenth volumes of the archaeologia or transactions of the society of antiquaries and subsequently at more length and with more elaborate research in his work entitled Essay historique sur les bardes les jongleurs et les trouvets normands et anglo-normands three volumes octavo can eighteen thirty four the earliest recorded writer of French verse appears to be Richard I, Duke of Normandy, the natural but only son of William I, and son and successor Rollo, the great founder of the Duchy. Richard, who afterwards acquired for himself the surname of saint the Fearless, was born in 933, was recognized as Duke on the death of his father ten years after, and died after a glorious reign of more than half a century in 996. Of his poetry, however, nothing remains except the fame preserved in the writings of another trouvère of the next age. Richard, it may be observed, had been sent by his father to be educated at Bayeux, where the Danish language was still spoken instead of at Rouen, the capital of the Duchy, where even already only a generation after the arrival of the Normans, they or their children, as well as the native population, spoke only French, and his taste for poetry is said to have been first awakened by the songs of the land of his ancestors. Much of the peculiar character, indeed, of the early northern french poetry betokens a scandinavian inspiration with this influence was probably combined that of the old celtic poetry of Brittany or america of which the country now called normandy has had been originally a part and with which it still continued to be intimately connected in this way may we can reconcile the various theories that have been proposed on the subject of the origin of romantic poetry and fiction in europe one deducing it from a scandinavian another from a celtic a third from an oriental source and each separately looked at, appearing to support itself by facts and considerations of great force. When these several theories were advanced in opposition to one another by ingenious and more or less well-informed speculators of the last century, the distinction between the early language and poetry of the South and those of the North of France had been little attended to, and was very imperfectly understood. Had the love-songs of the Provence Salve, Troubadours, and the Lays and Tales of the Norman Trouvet, not been confounded together it might have been perceived that both the internal and the external evidence concurred in assigning in great part at least a saracenic origin to the former and a mixed scandinavian and Armorican parentage to the latter another early norman trouvere, whose name only has been preserved is thibault de vernon who was a canon of rouen in the early part of the eleventh century or in the age intermediate between that of duke richard Samper and that of the conqueror a collection of fifty-nine old french lives of saints of which three are in verse and the rest in prose has been attributed to de vernon but erroneously as is shown by m de la rue what he really wrote was a verse life of saint vendry the ab Gisellus, which appears to be lost the renowned minstrel Fair, who struck the first blow at the battle of Hastings is described by his countryman Wace in the next century as having dashed on horseback among the ranks of the English to meet his glorious death singing him Charlemagne and Roland d'Olivet and the other peers who died at Rencesvaux de Calamagne et de Roland et d'Olivet et des vassals qui murro en Ronceval. various pieces of ancient verse have been from time to time produced, claiming to be the Song of Roland, as it is styled by several later chroniclers, and it has been generally assumed that it was a short lyrical strain and a composition of Taillefer's own. Lately, however, much attention has been attracted to a long poem of nearly 300 stanzas, or some 3,000 lines, which was first published by M. Francisque Michel from the manuscript in the Bodleian Library under the title of La Chanson de Roland ou de Rencevaux octavo, Paris, 1837, in which is maintained to be the true old epic of which a portion was recited by Taillefer on this occasion. The existence of this poem was, we believe, first pointed out in a note to his edition of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, verse 13,741, by Terwitt, so many of whose hints and conjectures on such subjects have anticipated or been confirmed by more recent inquiry and who observes that the romance which in the manuscript has no title may possibly be an older copy of one which is frequently quoted by ducange under the title of le roman de rensevaux the author's name he adds is thuroll as appears from the last line si fait le geste que is not mentioned by any of the writers of french literary history that i have seen there are in fact other manuscripts of the work but of a later age and exhibiting a modernized text it appears however to have been generally forgotten until it was again mentioned by the late rev j f coney bear in announcing in the gentleman's magazine for august 1817 his illustrations of the early history of english and french poetry a work which unfortunately he did not live to publish that same year, an analysis of the poem was given in the first volume of the Mémoire et Dissertation de la Société Royale des Antiquaires de France by M. de Musset, who at the same time announced an edition of it as in preparation by M. Bureau de Zerbier. This, however, never appeared. Any more than an edition which was announced in eighteen thirty-two as then preparing by M. Bourdillon nor although it was subsequently made the subject of much discussion by m h monin who published a dissertation upon it in an octavo volume at paris in eighteen thirty two by m Paulin paris by m le rue de lancy in his analyse du roman de Garon le Loherin Duodecimo Odessimo, paris eighteen thirty five and other french poetical antiquaries was the poem made accessible to the public till monsieur michel was enabled to bring out his edition of it of which the impression however was very limited by the liberality of the french government but a more sumptuous edition was subsequently produced by the late monsieur f genin le chanson de roland text, critique octavo paris 1850 founded on a further examination conducted with the extraordinary care of the original manuscript which the enthusiastic editor is inclined to believe to be the very copy that had belonged to talia Fair and illustrated with everything in the way of explanation and disquisition that any student could desire or that rare ingenuity as well as erudition could supply end of section twelve